0: Hello and welcome to coronavirus the whole story an award-winning podcast made right here at UCL my name's Vivian Parry I'm a writer broadcaster UCL alumna and your host of this podcast that has been documenting UCL's contributions to the fight against coronavirus right from the very beginning but what's all too evident this week is that it's so not over yet And although over the last few episodes we've boldly tackled returning to work, having conversations about the safest way to commute and how to create a COVID-free office environment, and even ventured last week to talking about a safe return to campus, the virus clearly has other plans. The situation is evolving rapidly. Rules seem to change every half hour. Six million of us are already under some sort of regional restrictions. And a second lockdown, or as it seems to be called this time, a circuit break, looks increasingly likely. and cancel Christmas. So in this episode we're talking about isolation, coming out of it and going back into it, how to cope mentally and emotionally and I'm turning to researchers in education, brain sciences and space science for the answer. My first guest is Professor Peter Fonagy, a youth psychology expert and head of the Division of Psychology and Language Sciences. Peter is also chief executive of the Anna Freud Centre for Children and Families, a charity that works with young people to provide mental health support and education. My next guest for this week is Professor Kerry Dewitt, Professor of Learning and Technology in the very aptly named UCL Knowledge Lab. Carrie studies touch and the way that it's used in communication. She's currently leading on the project In Touch, which is exploring different methods of digital touch from robotics to virtual realities and how their creation and use is affecting our culture. And finally, yes, you did hear that right space science. I'm delighted that we've got my good friend, Dr. Kevin Fong, with us. When Kevin's not presenting ridiculously good science programmes for radio and TV. He's a consultant anaesthetist at UCL hospitals and flies with Air Ambulance Kent, Surrey, Sussex. And if that wasn't enough, he's also an expert in space medicine and is the co-director of the Centre for Aviation, Space and Extreme Environment Medicine here at UCL. So let's start with you, Kevin. Could you explain how being in lockdown and being in ICU is like being in space.
1: Well, I mean, it's like being in space, I guess, principally, because I've had to spend a lot more time with people than we would otherwise have had to spend. You know, that that, that is one of the issues that, that astronaut crews face, that when they deploy, they are in each other's faces for many days, sometimes many months at a time. And, and, and you know, you can hide the way you feel about someone for a few hours at a time, but you can't do it over days and weeks. You know, that's that's the basis of most reality TV so, so So in some ways, you know, these lockdown strategies have inadvertently, I think, created these sort of little clusters of people, you know, who are having to go through what the average astronaut crew goes through day in, day out on mission.
0: And what about ICU? Because that's an environment that's also similar to space in another way.
1: Well, I mean, intensive care medicine really has a lot of overlap w- w- with the space environment partly because in both environments you are reliant upon artificial technology to support your life and continue to survive from, from from moment to moment and so you know in, in both cases uh, you are using the sort of bleeding edge of science and technology um to to support life now for, for astronauts it's about supporting life you know, healthy people against an impossibly extreme environment. But, but, but for intensive care, it's about trying to support, you know, extremely unwell people with critical illness uh, against that illness. And, and so uh, in, in both cases, you're sort of bringing together sort of pretty much every facet of science, technology and engineering that there is to bring, um, all, all really in the name of the same goal, which, which is to protect human life.
0: And what lessons can we learn from space that we can apply to either going into lockdown or coming out of lockdown? Let's try going into lockdown, first of all. Apart from we can't, of course, choose our family and have NASA do selection processes. Although if they'd like to try with my family, they're very welcome.
1: I mean, I'm not sure what direct lessons we can learn in terms of sort of, you know, the... The psychology of isolation you know we know that except to recognize that that is tough i mean it's tough to do that it's you know, we've probably all spent much more time with the people around us than we would ordinarily have spent with them and so we know and there have been lots of uh experiments with astronauts and and astronauts Sort of uh, surrogates, as it were, on Earth uh, that have shown just how hard people find that. Uh, I mean that you know there are fa- there's a famous Russian experiment, I think called Sphinx, in, in which the the participants literally came to blows in, in the middle of the experiment. So, so I, I think that it's not so much what we can extract directly, but, but it is to appreciate that these are difficult environments and probably require a great. Greater level of, I guess, you know, empathy and understanding on the part of everybody. It's going. I think for a lot of people, it's probably going to be quite difficult.
0: And what about the other way round? People coming out of isolation because that's actually also tough. People assume that it's easy, but suddenly going from just having a few people around you to 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 many, or just being by yourself, that's quite overwhelming, isn't it?
1: Yes, and I I guess you know that that's not something that we have particular problem with it, with the astronaut corps their big problem is actually rehabilitating their bodies to to come back to earth and there are some amusing stories you know of, of the things that happen to them they're not allowed to drive for a couple of days because they're just terrible at driving cars i mean some would argue that they're terrible at driving cars beforehand but, but 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 for them it's a question of their physical readaptation and coming back to it i mean i mean there is this sort of well-known of people have been in long-term confinement that that you know it's very difficult um, when they come out because they've not been used to choice. But that is over much more extreme populations so, you now. P- people have been sort of held hostage, et cetera. And, and I remember one, a, a, a person who was sort of responsible for rehabilitating hostages who'd who'd come back from, from being held captive. And they said that one of the first things you do to rehabilitate them is you, you take them to a supermarket in the middle of the night uh, and and you sort of get them used to the idea that they can choose. They have choice and autonomy in their lives. Lockdown is not that. It's not that extreme, but I think we shouldn't underestimate the psychological pressures that are associated with that. And there are some crossovers between between the isolation that we see with the crews um, that fly and, 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 you know, families and friends who are locked down together today.
0: What do you advise your patients coming out of the isolation of ICU? What do you say will be helpful for them to do?
1: So it, it's difficult. I mean, this is you know, n- not my area, and because of the way that intensive care and also you know my air ambulance work works, I-, I tend not to see them at that stage, which is often the most difficult stage for the patients. I think you know, and and let's not confuse the two things. For people coming out of isolation as a result of this lockdown, you know, there are some issues. For people coming out of intensive care there are substantial psychological issues, um, uh, not least because if you've been through a period of critical illness where you've been ill enough to be on intensive care and on a ventilator, uh, that's a traumatic experience in and of itself. Uh, and so, in fact, at University College London Hospital, where, where I work, uh, the teams there have pretty good programs of follow-up and, and of trying to get people used to In in fact, for those patients, for the patients who are in intensive care, it is actually akin and has been compared to a hostage situation because there are many, many, many overlaps. So so for that population, there is not just advice, there is very, uh, you know, there there, there is support that we try and bring after they've been discharged from the intensive care unit.
0: And is there anything that you've seen work well for intensive care patients in terms of coming to terms with their experience and readjusting that actually might be helpful for people coming out of lockdown obviously there is not the same sort of trauma as you as you say and the you know the, the physical experience but there are some little similarities too
1: yes i i mean it, it is difficult i i again i think i would come back to the idea that that you know, we shouldn't underestimate how difficult this is, I think, going to be for people just society in general, actually. So, you know, go. I am more familiar with the challenges of being in lockdown, at least in comparison to what lockdown looks like compared to what it looks like for small crews of people who are locked up together in a confined space for a long period of time. I, I think that actually everything has changed, hasn't it? I mean, COVID has changed everything about our lives, and uh, and I would imagine that that we'll all go through something of, of of an adjustment reaction all the way through this. So, I think again, the advice is really only not to underestimate it and uh, uh, and, and to seek help if, if if you need help. I think.
0: Finally, one question I've always wanted to know the answer to. So, when you've got a small crew. Uh, Just like the small numbers of students um, that are now isolating, perhaps in in fours or sixes or more in the halls of residence who may be self-isolating. How do you cope? What do they do in space when an argument breaks out?
1: (laughs) I mean I mean most of the countermeasures in space revolve around selecting crews that are gonna work well together in the first place. Uh and you know, not all crews work well together. There's some very famous instances in the past of crews falling out and particularly during the mere shuttle era where you had uh, you know, the first missions that Russians and Americans were flying together, and in, in the thawing of the Cold War, there were some pretty impressive fallings out of, of crews, crews that barely spoke to one another at times, um, and and so um, a, a lot of it is really about selecting crews that are compatible. I think that one of the things we know that the, that helps with the cohesion in a crew uh, is that they have worked together to overcome. Uh, an obstacle together, uh, you know a challenge together, so we, we we know that crews who've been some you know great challenge and succeeded on the other side uh, tend to be more cohesive uh, so so it's that sort of thing. And although, although psychology is really not my primary, well, it's not my primary speciality at all. You know, that that is the sort of thing that we know from looking at astronaut crews that, that helps them. That's why part of their training involves them sort of getting thrown into forests and doing survival training. I mean, yes, that is a possibility that they may have to do those things. But actually, you know, learning how to fend for yourself with a parachute and some survival Russians for a few days actually creates the sort of cohesion um, that, that, uh, that is useful, I think, for them on mission later on. So <laughs> I'm not sure how useful that is to us. I don't think too many people can well, throw themselves into forests with survival Russians right let's now. Let's
0: turn then to our psychologist and psychological expert here. Some people, of course, return to their pre-coronavirus lives or at least something similar. A lot of people, particularly young people, are about to make big life changes traveling across the country or even from across the other side of the world and then may have to go back into some form of isolation. Typically, the students coming to university. So, Peter, as our expert in young people, in what ways might lockdown affect young people, particularly those starting
2: university? Thanks. It's a wonderful question and it's a wonderful opportunity for me to talk about my favourite subject, which is indeed young people and the mental health challenges they face. So what you're looking at here is something that is against the background of a problem that has been made more challenging, more difficult by COVID-19 and the lockdown, but actually was pre-existing. So there's been an increase uh, since uh, probably the early 1990s, maybe a little bit later, in mental health problems for young people. But during the crisis, during lockdown, this has really reached proportions that I've you know, never thought that I would see, where in some surveys, uh, the prevalence of diagnosable mental health problems went up to about 40% of young people. That's extraordinary. It's you telling me it, it is indeed. Now, that's some surveys, not, not, not others, but it's certainly not below 30, 35% in young women. And going with that is uh, serious things, self harm, uh, sorts of suicide. So it's not stuff that uh, you can easily say uh, that we can just overlook. What I would say is that there's a massive age difference here, and I'm really glad that we're highlighting young people because people my age, would you believe, uh, notwithstanding everything that uh, Kevin has been saying, their mental health problems during lockdown decreased. The older you were, the better you felt about lockdown, even though in terms of physical health, in terms of uh, actual risk, we were most at risk, but actually we kind of sort of enjoyed it we, don't have to meet all the people that we didn't like meeting. <laughs> I'm not sure that. Yes, there are
0: quite a lot of people who are celebrating the fact that at Christmas they won't have to have any of the
2: people they don't normally want to be. Indeed, with. indeed, indeed. But you know, young people are—you know—young people biologically, uh, in terms of evolution, they are there to make relationships. They need to have contact, physical contact, uh, if you like. With others, they need to have human beings there in order to feel real within themselves. And that's a very curious thing about human beings that I think what Kevin is saying touches on, that in isolation, we don't feel quite complete, that somebody responding to us in a contingent way, in the way that uh, reflects our agency, our identity, is essential to our happiness and put with that something that uh, is perhaps uh, not just due to COVID, but perhaps is the background to it, which is uh, young people's pessimism about the future. When I was young, you know, I remember uh, I was optimistic. I knew that things would be better for me than they were for my parents. Perhaps we have the first generation who are going to be less well off than previous generations perhaps they are more worried about climate change because it will affect their lives. Whereas some of us in uh, slightly older think, well, there's après moi, la deluge, you know, after me, uh, who cares? unemployment employment will affect them more. So there is a pessimism about the future that I think we have to be sympathetic with beyond what the lockdown, uh, threats of lockdown, deprive young people. And when we have television programs where they are blamed for causing the second wave, that, you know, if it wasn't for them, then we wouldn't have a problem. I really feel for young people because all they're trying to do is to be young, to do what they are supposed to do at that age, which is to make contact with other young people and feel validated in those relationships, so they have uh, a lot uh, that's challenging. I'm sorry, Vivian, I've been going on.
0: Uh, no, it's it, it's fascinating. And, and actually, I, I've got enormous, enormous sympathy for them. And UCL as an institution, I guess, is in a difficult place because on the one hand, wants to be as supportive as possible. But on the other hand, is in the position of having to enforce, in some cases, uh, isolation. But l- let me focus first on what sort of support works best for young people and what uh, UCL can do? Well,
2: I think making it easy for young people to meet each other. To be honest, I think having face-to-face lectures, I've never known face-to-face lectures to be an adequate treatment for mental disorder. I think they've caused mental disorder perhaps to a greater measure. So I don't think many young people will be too handicapped by either synchronous or asynchronous teaching uh, from lecturing staff. And, but I think for us to facilitate young people being together safely and encouraging it and facilitating the process of peer-to-peer support, I think, is the best that we can do. Obviously, we have to be alert to young people needing our assistance. But I think what we really should do is largely to normalise their their responses, to normalise their experiences. If they feel anxious, if they feel angry, if they feel upset, that is what we'd expect them to feel. That's not mental disorder. And avoid throwing therapy at them uh, at all costs. I don't think that's uh, really the best thing that we can do. We have to identify perhaps those that have clinically important symptoms associated with trauma or associated with depression. And we have to give them access to targeted evidence-based interventions, if we can, via the NHS or via our own services. But I think by far the best thing that we can do is to get out of their way. Because, you know, adults giving advice to young people is not necessarily the uh, best intervention. We should make things easy for them. Uh, We should put opportunities in front of them, uh, make things uh, easy that are safe and consistent with government advice, but really focus on how they can help each other rather than how we can help them.
0: And what particular advice would you have for young people themselves, apart from, and I'm thinking of Kevin here, choose your
2: flatmates very wisely? I, I do think that that's a difficult one having them it's in st andrews locked down in the hall of residence is not going to help so it's trying to find ways that we facilitate small groups safely meeting and drinking because they do i don't i'm not encourage, i do not want to encourage drinking here i just am being realistic we really accept it happens right <laughs> yeah it it does it, do, it seems to uh, I, I, I as, a, as a student, I was uh, served behind the bar at the Students' Union. I, I, I remember the experience and the, its importance. But, you know, um, us in academe um, to actually try and create in seminar groups, try and create within our courses opportunities for young people to interact as as, as best we can, creating projects, creating little tables around which they can work, mixing the social, uh, with the work, as far as we can. That would be, I think, a psychologist's advice.
0: That's very helpful. Thank you so much. Now, you're listening to Coronavirus, The Whole Story, a podcast brought to you by UCL Minds. And if there's a question about coronavirus you'd like our researchers to answer, email us at minds at UCL.ac.uk or tweet at UCL. <laughs> So far, we've talked a lot about preparing ourselves mentally for lockdown, either exiting or coming into it. But what I'd now like to talk to you about is something slightly different. And Carrie, you study touch. Tell us how important touch is for communication and interaction.
3: Yeah, I think just listening to Kevin and Peter, who sketched out the need for empathy. And how difficult and uncertain our communicational landscape is at the moment. One thing that's really brought to the fore for many of us, including a lot of young people, I think, is how important touch is. I mean, we really miss it. People are really missing kind of incidental touch even. Just just being out in the world and being near one another, even people that we don't know, just being a part of something. And so, touch—you know—from it, it's the first sense that develops. It develops in 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 us before, while we're in the womb, and it's also apparently the last sense to go. So, people with dementia often a touch will kind of be the last kind of real communicative um, mode that they have left that becomes meaningful. So, it's very central to our well-being. It's. Uh, really closely linked to different emotional states. It's um connected with loneliness. But coming back to something that Peter said in a way, like this touch deprivation, if you like, that we're all experiencing, or many of us, especially those of, of us who live alone, it's it's something that happened before COVID. It's something that COVID is really amplifying in our in our kind of current communicational landscape. But there's many people through for for lots of different reasons who haven't had touch in their lives. And that's linked to really strongly linked to well-being. But it's also vital to the ways in which we communicate because so much of how we communicate is very tacit. It's very kind of below the radar. And the work that we're doing really wants to look at touch because we we see it as like perhaps one of the most neglected of our communicational senses, like neglected by by research and also something that people find very hard to articulate we have very limited language for talking about touch and so this kind of sense of this very important thing that we're all starting to realize just how important it is to our own sense of self really
0: and and that how hard it is to talk about and it's very hard not to touch isn't it i mean we're all finding that so difficult I mean, it's not just you know not touching our faces because of uh, 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 mask wearing all that kind of thing but you know the the inability to hug somebody mm. particularly if you know that that person is in distress i'm afraid i will admit it now that a friend whose husband had died a couple of days previously and i met her unexpectedly and my first instinct was just to put my arms around her. And it's almost impossible not to do that in that kind of situation, because that is such an important part of our social interaction.
3: It really is. And I think kind of that. How could you not do that? You know, when, when you when you met your friend in that context. But I think what you raise there is this really difficult moment about the uncertainty of our communicational landscape now, which is how do we touch? Like, and I think how do we touch? How do we move? What kind of the, the the change of the personal space that we have now and what that does. I mean obviously it's it's hard to just manage on a very practical level. Like how do you how do four of you sit in a space and talk loudly enough that everyone can hear but you're still socially distant. So um, how do you, you know, share 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 a drink? How do you pass cups? How do you, you know, this, this, everything comes up into kind of a problem. But more than that, in a way, is this kind of how to touch, and how to move, and how to be in a space together really throws up all the questions about social norms like like you're saying like it's what you would automatically do you'd automatically friend hug, hug your friend in that that situation and to not do so would just feel so unempathetic and so unnatural and uncaring that so so it's the social norms that we're all dealing with kind of pre covid now we're in this quite long extended period everything's uncertain and these social norms are normally completely unspoken i mean if someone's coming from another country to come study at ucl to work at ucl they'll become very aware of the cultural norms of 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 how touch features in the in the british landscape i think in london that's and big cities that's that's quite different because we're so um such a diverse population but nonetheless, coming from southern Italy through to um, a very English environment would, would show up some of the rules about touch or some of the rules about how we move and how closely we sit with one another. So students are having to deal with this kind of culture, but they're having to shift, but they're having to deal with it in this kind of place where all the social norms are kind of in flux and, and where these unspoken tacit rules are now kind of having to be negotiated and spoken about. And I think that's very, very difficult. And I really loved how much Kevin and Peter, without being completely dystopian, just want to recognise how difficult this is. And I think that's really important to be kind to ourselves and kind to one another and to recognise that it's tough negotiating all of these things.
0: I I'm, I'm must just quickly go back to Kevin on this. What about touch within a space environment? Do astronauts touch each other? Are they not suited and booted all the time?
1: Well, I, I, they can't help it. I mean, these, these things aren't very big. I and mean, space shuttle, I, I never forget how I felt the first time. I, I had a look around the mid-deck of the space shuttle, which is basically the size of the smallest bathroom in your house and used to hold up to seven people for uh, for 16 days at a time you know and and um, so they are in each other's faces literally for many many months at a time space station is bigger space station probably has the free floating space sort of you know comparable to a to a to a jumbo jet but you know they in many ways the and and, and they the, the current astronaut crews aboard space station are in better shape than us because they are the most carefully screened people who go to work of any occupation probably in the world at the moment and uh, and they launch themselves into a space station and and they are confident they don't have coronavirus so they actually don't in that regard they don't have to worry about the same sort of restrictions that we have to about you know having physical contact with people who aren't in their immediate well they are in their own unique elite bubble social bubble up there
0: what about those Kevin skin on skin touch because i'm going to go back to uh, uh, Carrie in a moment to talk about uh digital touch but skin on skin touch is that possible in the space station
1: well yes what well, you know as I said, they they are in close quarters the whole time. So yes, I, I you know, in and as much as it happens in in society in general, you know, I mean, when you really genuinely think about how much skin on skin touch we have with people outside of our own families in everyday society, it, it is pretty limited. So so I, I would guess that theirs is you know they get as much as we do. I would say on, on mission and and the crews. These days are well selected, and and tend to work very well together. You know, I mean, the sorts of stories that we had in the early days of human spaceflight. Uh, there's a very different personality type that selects into the astronaut corps these days. Certainly, the American astronaut corps, NASA, they tend to they tend to have the full range of you know emotional repertoire available to them. They they, they tend to be good people to hang around with.
0: So, uh, Carrie, you're studying digital touch what's that and is it the solution
3: (laughs) well we're studying touch in general and then how it's mediated through different kinds of technologies so when we talk about touch we're not just talking about direct touch like poking someone or stroking someone we've got what we're calling an extended approach to touch where we're thinking about um different layers of touch if you like so how in so self-touch so our our relationship to our own body in terms of soothing for example but also in terms of balance and kinesthetic and our understanding of our body in in space in space not the kind of space that that kevin's in but in the world then interaction with objects and other people so and then also thinking about touch in terms of the environment so there's how you know the wind how we interact with the wind how we interact with say like walking across the beach our feet so we're trying to extend touch from just the way that actually technology makes us think about touch a lot which is our hand or our finger on a very flat reduced kind of screen so our view of touches is quite broad I don't think digital technology is the answer around touch in this particular moment, but I think it is a answer, uh, an answer that that perhaps can just help us imagine different kinds of touches rather than trying to mimic the touch that we're all missing so much, maybe so we can use technology, even the, the kind of flat screen of Zoom, which we're all really fed up with by now, I think, but how we can use technology to reimagine what it is to touch one another or be close and present with one
0: another. It's very interesting that one of the additions that has occurred with Zooms and Teams and all those kind of things is being able to look at people as if they were sitting in an auditorium. In other words, they're touching each other.
3: Yeah, I think the way that the we're positioned in relation to each other on zoom is quite interesting and the ways it creates different hierarchies about who's speaking and who isn't as an attempt to um set up some social norms but we're still all struggling with that i think and also the ways in which technology like zoom and all the other um kind of platforms, puts us in little boxes. though. I think it makes us all very static. And I've been working with some dancers. We've we've got a project called the Lockdown Diaries. And what we're exploring is how you might use the dance skills of touch and movement. Like dancers have an amazing awareness around their own bodies and in space and in relation to one another. And they have to have that. That's part of the dance training. And so what we're asking is, how might you use those dance skills to give lay people like like me, I'm not a dancer, uh, a way out of, roots out of thinking about lockdown, like feeling safe as we kind of move out into the world. Um, And something we're doing there is together with a dancer called Lisa May Thomas is designing online immersive art experiments to, to help people explore and sensitize themselves to touch and explore how they might come out into the environment and the world again, like connecting with what Peter's saying about the need to be together and how to manage that through a new awareness around touch. And I think technology is, is a way, like so there in that case, we're using immersive virtual reality experiences to to um, explore and, and attune people to touch. I think I think they have a lot of, experimental possibilities where we can try things out and explore explore our own sense of touch as well and so in that sense amongst all of this kind of really really difficult time i think it is possible that 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 we can use this as a as a positive moment to kind of pause and take it as a time. For all of us, especially you know thinking about young people who may be spending more time on their own, to kind of rethink and imagine ways of being close and ways to feel connected because often we can't be with our loved ones and so we could you know use technology, even you know instagram photo diaries, ways to explore our own our own relationships to touch and one another and 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 those visual technologies can can be used to kind of create a heightened sense of touch as well through through talking about touch, through, you know, giving ourselves a hug whilst looking at someone else, like how, co- how can we play around, I suppose. I mean, the the positive thing is that people are incredibly imaginative about how they communicate. So this kind of awful time really pushes us to the limits of how to imagine how we might communicate with us. But I think technology is a can be really key in that, in that reimagining touch.
0: I just wanted to ask a final question, which is about optimism. And Peter, can I come to you on the, uh, optimism? Are you optimistic that we'll come out of this in good shape?
2: Well, I think, Gary, uh, appropriately said, human beings are incredibly resilient and we have survived far worse than this. Uh, So I'm sure that we will come out of it. Will we come out of it entirely undamaged? I think uh, those of us, older people, will do. I mean, you know, middle-aged and upwards. Younger people, entirely undamaged, I'm not so sure. And whilst I like being optimistic, and uh, I I really want to be optimistic about all this, but I do think that uh, we have to try a little bit harder to make things easier for young people if we do want to fully recover without there being a, quote, lost generation. The uncertainties that we create about exams, about university, about everything else, this does take its toll on the people who are the sharp edge of uh, that uncertainty.
0: And of course, UCL has an absolutely critical role to play in this. Kevin, optimistic? Yeah,
1: look, I've thought about this a lot over the years and and especially given the jobs that I've had in anaesthesia and intensive care and and working with the air ambulance, you know, and the crews that I work with see awful things all the time and and I've always wondered, you know, how they manage with that. And I say all that because I I think that I came to the conclusion, as you've just heard, that, you know, that we are on the whole an incredibly resilient species that is the history of humankind isn't it that 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 in the history of humankind we have seen horrific things happen to our kith and kin at close range over and over again and we've picked ourselves up and we've gone again and that's not to say that there is no injury in this there is clearly plenty of injury but 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 i think to say that There is optimism because that's what we do. We get ourselves together again and we go again as a society but there needs to be some understanding and there needs to be uh, an ability for us to work together to protect one another and to help one another. So that, that resilience is a thing that is not a property of individuals, but a property of the wider group.
0: A very optimistic note to end on. Thank you all so much. You've been listening to Coronavirus, the whole story. The episode was presented by myself, Vivian Parry, produced by UCL with support from the UCL Health of the Public and UCL Grand Challenges, and edited by the wonderful Caris Bradley. Our guests today were Dr. Kevin Fong and Professors Peter Fonergy and Carrie Dewitt. And if you'd like to hear more of these podcasts from UCL Minds, of course you would. Subscribe wherever you download your podcasts or visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash coronavirus. And it's goodbye for me. Thank you so much.